the auditor should be held accountable and be required to respond to red flags or potential red flags. This is a nuanced issue, and I know that it calls into question professionalism and the accounting profession, but every financial control scandal usually stems from an inadequate or missed red flag that is the responsibility of the auditor to uncover and investigate. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everyone. Glad you could make it for this week's episode. This is an episode on ethics and compliance trends and predictions for the year. And I always uh, enjoy the beginning of the year just to get out the crystal ball and look forward with some kind of view about last year's trends and where I think ethics and compliance is going to go in 2023. Gives me an opportunity to sort of use the crystal ball. I always put up the uh, picture on the blog of Karnak, which Shows my age, the Johnny Carson routine about Karnak the Magnificent, which was very funny if you ever watch any old uh, oh, uh, YouTube videos of it. So basically, the compliance profession is continuing to grow. It's growing in overall importance in the corporate governance landscape. I think it was fueled even more by even the, the movement towards ESG and the focus on governance. Corporate leaders now that fail to appreciate this new face of corporate governance do so at a serious risk to their organizations and their own livelihood, in a sense. It's a must-have. So boards and CEOs that ignore the importance of ethics and compliance are doomed, maybe not today, but certainly in the near term. One of my concerns in this area has always been the lack of adequate resources, be it staff and funds for appropriate tools that are needed. And we all know that no one is so lucky that they can dodge what I would call compliance karma, which always has a way of catching up with those organizations that believe that they can avoid risks of reputational damage with little attention to ethics and compliance. I've seen too many organizations that operate in a red flag landscape suffer real and significant harm. So there are a number of issues I wanted to go through in looking back at last year, but also, you know, where we're heading this year. It's pretty obvious to me some of the issues that are going to definitely be at the top level of ethics and compliance. And it's ironic now to read and hear business leaders who may be embracing for the first time the importance of ethics and compliance culture for years. When I hear people repeat the short mantra of we do the right thing or that to me, that's a headline, but that has to be backed up by substance. And all too often I see senior leaders who say that, but then if you ask them, well, explain to me how you do the right thing and make sure everybody in the organization does and what controls you have in place, then you get the uh, Jackie Gleason response of humda, 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 humda. This mantra to me usually masks senior leadership's complete lack of knowledge, as I'm saying. It's like a deer caught in a headlight. And I dare you to ask a CEO who just says that, 
okay, tell me how you go about implementing and promoting a culture of ethics and compliance. So I don't mean to be too sarcastic, but I want to be realistic in terms of how far this importance or this priority is embedded in a company. To me, it's embedded through real, serious, significant efforts that stretch all the way to every aspect of a company's organization. So my first trend, my number one trend, is culture, culture, and culture, because particularly in the ESG context, it's become more and more appropriate to talk about this. So, you know, I find it interesting, obviously, to pick on the senior executives who fail to appreciate the importance of corporate culture. But to me, it has to be not only do we want to get beyond senior management and board awareness and understanding, but eventually we're also going to have to get to the issue of C-suite risks themselves. And that comes into my second prediction. And it's a twofold sort of argument. CCOs have tried to ignore the issue of C-suite risks for years because they feel uncomfortable raising it with their leadership team. But like all difficult issues, there's an easy way to convince senior management of the importance of analyzing C-suite risks as well. So the argument that I have for this is twofold. If you review last year's FCPA enforcement actions, especially those involving the Justice Department, you might notice a pattern. Most of the enforcement actions involved senior management either active commission or participation, direction, or awareness of ongoing corruption schemes. Indeed, in the Goal Airlines case, a director of the organization executed the bribery scheme himself. That's the first point. The second point, though, involves communications and internal alliances. C-suite misconduct risks usually include to non-existent financial controls applicable to C-suite leaders. Companies have suffered C-suite-directed scandals because C-suite leaders are able to fund themselves or direct schemes from their lofty positions atop the organization. So CCOs need to reach out to internal audit and their CFOs to enlist their support for a simple proposition. And that is that we need to design and implement financial controls applicable to the C-suite that are tailored to the relevant risks. Well, how do we define those risks? We need to include the C-suite in our risk assessment process. Voila. Therefore, my second trend is the need for C-suite risk assessments and the need for making sure that the C-suite is included in all of this. So again, culture, 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 C-suite risks. This is the focus on sort of actions that are taken by the C-suite, risks that are applicable and generated by the C-suite activity, and making sure that we are promoting a culture, making sure that we are embedding the culture, making sure that we are monitoring the culture, and then intervening in those aspects of the culture that are important. So to me, culture, culture, culture is everything. Getting into the nuts and bolts of how you measure your culture, how you monitor your culture is really important. And then number two is getting at the issue of what are the risks of even misconduct within our C-suite? Because obviously, C-suite risk, even one bad actor can have significant impact on an organization, and we've seen that through the years. So now let's go to my third trend. This is not going to surprise people, but I want to dig a little bit more into this. 
In my third trend, which is not surprising, but hear me out on the specific aspects, we hear ad nauseum about the importance of third-party risk management. We hear that every FCPA case, 90% of them involve third-party misconduct. In the past year or two, this issue of third-party risk management has morphed into what I would call a broader concept of holistic third-party risk management. It's in recognition of the fast-evolving risk landscape and the convergence of technology, remote work, and automation. In other words, the ability to identify, measure, and monitor risks, particularly with our third-party population, and the changes in the evolving risk landscape. Now we have cybersecurity third-party risks. Now we have data privacy third-party risks. Now we have other types of quote-unquote non-traditional, like NAFCPA, anti-corruption, AML, sanctions. Now we're looking at other types of risks that are created by our partnerships with regard to data privacy, but also cybersecurity, going back to the target cybersecurity matter, which occurred because of a third-party deficiency contractor who provided air conditioning repair services or whatnot. So that led to ultimately the ability to basically cause a data breach that was significant for Target. So that highlighted the issue, and we have numerous other examples of third-party risk and cybersecurity. So the convergence that I'm talking about here in terms of the ability to address, monitor, and collect data on your third parties, also with the evolving risk landscape, led to this transformation. But the fast pace of this trans transformation is going to continue. And the moniker of holistic risk management may continue, in fact. And the trend, though, in this area is to dig deeper into these holistic risks and start to identify what I would call granular risks. So I'm not trying to twist up concepts here, but holistic requires more than acknowledging or labeling a particular risk, such as cybersecurity risks associated with third parties. But the analysis has to turn into a more granular focus on specific functions and processes that each may contain identified risk. So continuing with my example, cybersecurity risks stemming from a third party requires granular identification of a variety of issues, including identification of the third party's cyber strategy, its awareness, monitoring capabilities, training, and security protocols that they may have as well as access to technologies, basic ones such as encryption and protecting access through the third party into your own important, valuable data. Another example might be also with granular risks that now we have greater ability, for example, through technology to monitor electronically transactions with third party distributors so that, for example, we can now start to look and sample transactions to make sure that we're not in, let's say, a discount is being given to a distributor, not passed on to the customer, and the distributor uses this to create a slush fund, and the slush fund is then used for bribery purposes. We saw examples of that. That's a classic that occurs with distributors or with marketing promotion funds and whether or not they provide adequate documentation to support a claim for marketing funds, which can be abused by a company for purposes of funding a slush fund for purposes of bribery. 
that's another example of exactly how we can get into what I would call granular third-party risk management, which means with the ability of technology, with the ability and our knowledge of third-party risks and more familiarity with the operations, how are we going to get even more granular and manage the risks with the appropriate amount of effort? So my third trend is granular third-party risk management. My final trend, and uh, here we get the Karnak applause because we're coming to the end here, is logically connected to the third trend. It derives from the tension that's inherent in financial controls. And I would call it the difference between auditors and forensic accountants. It continues to frustrate me how the auditing and accounting profession fails to integrate these two ideas into one overall framework. It reflects the fundamental divide or gap between two parts of the accounting profession, the auditor and the forensic accountant. Auditors live and breathe on one important concept, materiality. We constantly hear from auditors, oh, we don't need to dig into that issue because it is not material. What a cop-out, right? Of course, I understand it. They need materiality in order to complete their audit, certify the financial reports, disclose them to the public, and move on to the next lucrative engagement. It is the engine of their own financial success. However, I'm not ready to let that issue go. Auditors have done a poor job of doing what they should be doing. Instead of ignoring, turning a blind eye, covering up through this materiality concept, the auditor should be held accountable and be required to respond to red flags or potential red flags. This is a nuanced issue, and I know that it calls into question professionalism and the accounting profession, but every financial control scandal usually stems from an inadequate or missed red flag that is the responsibility of the auditor to uncover and investigate. As a result of this fundamental failure of performance, forensic accountants have played a much more important role, but usually in the aftermath of an auditor's negligence or misconduct. The forensic accountant comes up and cleans it up, but they also don't go back and often do not, just because of sort of what I call the professionalism and the professional loyalty, and go back and say, here's the things that the auditor missed or should have done, and had the auditor done, they would have seen this. So there's this fundamental tension between forensic and auditing accountants. The compliance profession is becoming more aware of this fundamental problem. And CCOs and compliance officers have to respond and are responding by asking more questions surrounding internal controls and specifically accounting controls. Let me give you an example. The SEC has repeatedly emphasized the importance of the organization's financial controls surrounding the contract, purchase order to invoice to payment process, the procurement to pay. Auditors usually look for ways to avoid drilling down on these issues. Forensic accountants, however, are experts in examining this process and identifying risks. Compliance professionals and lawyers are jumping into the game because of the importance of this process to overall financial and legal compliance and the history of abuse with regard to the contract to invoice to payment process as a way to cover up bribery schemes or fraud schemes or financial statement fraud, all of that. And usually because of the importance and this area 
as an area ripe with risk, CCOs are getting more interested in this. And the Justice Department and the SEC are pushing them to get involved in this, particularly with regard to third-party management. So trend number four, and my last one, is increased compliance participation in financial control review and responsibility. This trend will increase. Now, it may increase also some tension internally because here the CFO is going to say, look, you're coming into my territory, but there is naturally an overlap with compliance and the financial operations for the reasons that I've just gone through. Anyway, Karnak is done and we can all uh, applaud now. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week with a, another episode of Corruption, Crime and Compliance. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 